Uh, we are going to eventually get to 1 Kings chapter 14 this morning. If you want to go ahead and flip there, that's the passage uh, we'll be reading from. We have spent uh, probably, well, I was looking at my notes. I mean, we have been since April uh, looking at the resurrection, that first resurrection Sunday, Easter, all of these things. We've been looking at these appearances of Jesus. And the reason why uh, we did that, the reason why, one of the reasons why we've spent so long uh, dealing in those things and repeating these things constantly was because when we finished this part of the series, this part of this biography series where we looked at Christ, His death, His resurrection, then we started looking at the disciples in the early church. We even got to the point where we were looking at Saul, uh, who later becomes Paul. And what we were doing was building a case for a resurrected Jesus. And so I want to start this morning just by taking you over that one more time. My goal, my heart, is that tomorrow morning, if you've been here more than once, more than twice, you've listened uh, in some capacity, that you have reasons why you believe, not just in, in the resurrection of Jesus because somebody told you that story, or because uh, you grew up in a family, or you grew up in America where you've heard this story, not even because it was something you desired to cling to, because you desired it out of a feeling of, of what comes next, or a worry, or a fear, my goal was that when we finish this time, you would actually have reasons, evidence, that you have to do something with. The evidence that we have for the case of a resurrected Jesus, a bodily resurrected Jesus, about 2,000 years ago, the case we would put together sounds like this. There was an empty tomb. If there's no empty tomb, there's no resurrection. There is an empty tomb. That has to be accounted for. There are eyewitnesses. And they are early. This isn't two or three hundred years later. This is three days later. This is three weeks later. For Saul who would later become Paul. It might be a couple months later. But there is a time period here. Where people are running into a resurrected Jesus. And so you have to do something with that eyewitness testimony. If you have eyewitness testimony now. In a case being made. It is. A slammed up. If you have two or three, it's even more than that. It's when people start pleading out and making plea deals and, and trying to get the best sentence they can because they know that what is getting ready to happen is there is going to be a conviction or there is going to be an acquittal and it's going to be based off of eyewitness evidence. The case for the resurrection you and I have has many eyewitnesses. First Corinthians chapter 15 would say this. There are at least 500 and Paul would tell the church, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, go find them and talk to them. Because some have passed on, but others remain. And so the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church is saying, if you don't believe my testimony, go check it out. These people are still there. There are early eyewitnesses. There are many prophecies fulfilled in the life, the death, the burial, and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you have to do something with that evidence. It's not just random. One or two things about Jesus' life showing up in the Old Testament may make sense. But when you get into the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, 
when we're talking about prophecies that point to Christ. You have to do something with that evidence. You cannot stay neutral. Did somebody tinker with history to create these moments for this Messiah to come? You have to do something with that. It's not a neutral point. Then you get to the disciples, and now they're people on fire. They're turning the world upside down. They were unlearned, untrained fishermen. Many of the first eyewitnesses couldn't even testify in court because they were women. So in that culture, in that time, what do you and I see? We see a total transition of the disciples from running scared to being as bold as lions. And it happens in a short amount of time. It's not just Peter, and it's not just James, and it's not just John. It's all of them, and none of them ever break. Many of them, the next piece would say, these disciples on fire end up being martyrs for the Lord. Many people have died for their faith, and I need you to understand this and not miss it. Many people have died for their faith, but nobody would die for a known lie. And so you and I would look across the world today and we will see people dying for their faith constantly. Some even killing or killing themselves for their faith because it's something they believe. When the, the disciples went to their deaths, they did so with full knowledge of who Christ was and what was around the corner. So they did so differently. They had faith, but they also had, they had touched him, eaten with him, hugged him. He had forgiven them. And in the case of Saul that later becomes Paul, what happens? Jesus knocks him off his horse, his high horse, if you will. Knocks him off of it, blinds him, and then tells him, you're going to suffer for my kingdom. And when the time is right, you are going to be something for me. And what happens? Paul does exactly that. And so you have to do something with the evidence. And finally, we get to that idea with Paul. We get to the idea with Jude and with James. These people that did not believe in Christ all of a sudden become disciples. In, the, in the, the history of James, James is the younger brother of Jesus. In the disciples, he thinks his older brother is crazy. His older half-brother is nuts. And then after his resurrection, James is now the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So when you read into Acts, you see James's name come up. Why? Because he's settling disputes about this, this new religion. Should we act like Jews? Are we required to act like Jews? Are we required to do this or to do that to be saved? And it's James that helps settles that. Why? Because he was the younger brother of Christ. He was an enemy and now he is a follower. And so you and I have to do something with that evidence. Blind faith does not honor God. You have a brain. And we serve a wonderful Lord. That has blessed us with enough breadcrumbs to put our uh, life together based on him. Why? Because it would be foolish to think your blind faith or your feelings or your emotions was going to take you into a, a lifestyle where it would actually hurt to be Christian. You would still say, yes, I can't deny my Lord. Feelings are going to go up and down. Evidence has to be dealt with. And so for the last couple months, that is what we have looked at. We have took, taken an in-depth look. Of what it, would, what it would have taken for the disciples then to be so changed and to go so far for the mission. It's not blind faith. The Bible says you look up at the stars and, and, and the ever-expanding universe that we get to see now that people before us have never got to see. And every time they look further into space, 
They see detail. They see creation. They see something magnificent. And then even when you look into the microscope and you see smaller and smaller things, what do they see there? Detail. They see structure. If this is out of place, this doesn't work, and this organism dies, and then there is nothing, and it's just like, wow, this is way too fine-tuned. You have to do something with the evidence. You can't be neutral. And the evidence for Christianity is so strong that many of our mothers and our fathers have willingly lost things in this life, including their very lives, because they believed in a God that was good and a God that was alive. You and I get the Holy Spirit as that down payment. So you and I cannot take that and use it as evidence in a conversation with someone else. Why? Because it's totally internal. I know God is real because the Holy Spirit has sealed me up. He is the down payment for the day of redemption. I know that, but I can't make you know that. So we have to go back to the evidence. And the only thing that makes enough sense to have our calendars dated for Jesus' life is that that man in the middle of nowhere 2,000 years ago turned the world upside down. And he did not do it because his body is, is decayed or in a grave somewhere or in a tomb that stayed there. He did it because he got out of the tomb. And it was the stamp of approval of everything he taught. God of the universe that loves us. So that's where we've been the last couple months. I hope that you are memorizing these things because there's evidence there. And some days when your faith is weak, you can pull back in and say, but, but I know the story sounds just unbelievable, but the opposite side is even more crazy. Why would the disciples die for a lie? Why would nobody break rank? Like the, the whole story of God is, is mind-bending. It hurts your mind. The only story crazier than that is out of nothing came everything. Do you understand what I'm saying? That spinning hot cosmic dust one day broke open, exploded, and created all of this knowledge, all of this detail, all of this structure. The only story crazier than there's a God of the universe that has always been is that there is a universe that one day wasn't, that came into being, and now you and I sit here in it out of chance and chaos. The only story wilder than the God of the universe this person, this creative relational being, is that one day there was nothing, and then there was a day, and then there was space, and then there was stuff, and then that stuff turned into stuff that was more complex, and then that more complex stuff turned into me and you. It's not how things work. Evidence must be dealt with. Before that, where were we? We were in the stories of broken and real people. We were talking about the kings of old, right? That, uh, some sought healing, others marched on to destruction. We navigated Saul's kingdom, the king of insecurity. Saul's life was a disaster. And it started off really early when you're reading scripture. Why? He was very insecure. God had given him something. And instead of being a part of that and leaning into it uh, through the power of God, through the will of God, what do we find? When they go to anoint him king, he's hidden somewhere. They can't find the king to be. You see, very early on, Saul is insecure, and it will follow him the rest of his life. We spoke of David, a man after God's own heart. Listen to me, friends. The story of David is so magnificent. Why? Because David is known as a man after God's own heart. He creates significant, sinful things. He does them. 
And yet at the end of his life, God's attitude toward him hasn't changed. There were consequences, but God's attitude toward him didn't change. You and I still see him as a man of faith. You and I still see him as a man after God's own heart. So what does that mean for me and you? If you've messed up, there is redemption. And David is that picture. No matter what kind of mess you've made, real repentance brings about the glory and the blessing of God. And David is that story. And not only that, you don't get a secondary seat somewhere in heaven. You're not, you're not some kind of disciple that's broken and you're never going to be useful again. That is not the case with God. Why? Because David's testimony still sounds exactly the same. There were issues that had to be dealt with after he made his mistakes, after he sinned against God. But his testimony is still the same. A saint, faithful loving the people and devoted to the Lord. And he is still, other than Jesus Christ, David is still the standard of the king in Israel. After that, we talked about Solomon. Right? Like the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ is Solomon. And yet we see that from his own wisdom, he too makes a mess. He prays for wisdom and God gives it. And yet that wisdom is still not enough to protect his heart. From women of other kingdoms, idolatry, leading the nation down a horrible path. See, you and I are trying to glean this wisdom so that we don't have to experience what they did. As parents, as grandparents, even as just friends of other people's kids, you would love them and you would say, if you will listen to me, you will not have to hit this pothole. You will not have to deal with this. You will not have to deal with that. If you will just listen to what I'm telling you, I, I, I just want to help you avoid what I've done. Every time you and I pick up Scripture, that's a piece of what we're doing. We're learning the lessons from those that have come before us. Why? Because people are exactly the same. They are exactly the same. What do we see next? We see two pieces, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And this is where we ended the series before we started into Resurrection Sunday. We see two people now. Why do we see two people? Because Rehoboam is a prideful, young imbecile. He listens only to the young people in his court, only to those that are his contemporaries, his peers. And so when the people come in and say, man, Solomon ruled us hard. Lighten up just a little bit. And his peers tell him, listen, you need to tell them, if, if my father disciplined you with whips, I'm going to use scorpions. If it was hard under him, it's going to be really hard under me. And what happens in the moments after that? He alienates the kingdom from his own kingship. He's now a man without a kingdom. A king without a kingdom. And so he's prideful, he's young, he's a fool. That's 1 Kings chapter 12. His decision splits the kingdom. Judah is the only one left that follows him. All of Israel now is going to pick a new king. And who are they going to pick? They're going to pick a man named Jeroboam. And we read about him in the same passage. What does Jeroboam do? Another piece of insecurity. Listen, friends. You want to ruin your life? Be insecure. Be insecure. You will run off people. You will miss opportunities. You will destroy uh, the opportunity to build strong relationships if you and I are insecure. We know what that does in a relationship. I'm telling you right now, when you look at Scripture, you see these people that were given something by God. And instead of taking a hold of it, instead of, of, of glorifying God in it, they wind up worrying that they're going to lose it. 
So they sabotage their own lives. What does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam says, I do not want my people going back to Jerusalem, going into Judah to worship the Lord, because if they do, they may stay. So what does he do? He builds things and places for them to worship. His own insecurity leads the whole nation down the road of idolatry. And after that, there is tremendous breaking. There is tremendous issues to come. Why? Because he led the nation that chose to follow him. God told him, I'm going to make you king. And Jeroboam thought, in order to stay king, I need to manipulate some things to make sure that this can't be taken from me. Listen, Christian, you have so many blessings that are right there at your fingertips. And sometimes we lose them because we are insecure. We don't think God is going to provide for us. We don't think God is really that good. We don't think God has really made that promise to you and I. Has He promised to give me peace? Has He promised to give me joy? Has He promised to love me and surround me with good people? Has He promised these things? And the answer is yes. And yet you and I find... We constantly find ways to manipulate that because we're insecure. We don't believe he actually believes what he tells us or that he'll actually follow through with what he told us he would do. God told Jeroboam, I'm going to make you king. And then Jeroboam says, wow, if I don't do this thing or that thing, I'm not going to have a kingdom very long. So... To stay on the guardrails of that blessed life as a son or a daughter of King Jesus. All you have to do is be faithful. You don't have to do one other thing. Just be faithful. And heaven opens up. And the blessings of God fall. And they don't always look like money. They don't always look like you get in your way. Like we got a church filled with kids. Guess what happens when they get in their way? Right? They either make a mess, they get hurt, or they grow up being people that you don't want to be around. Do you understand what I'm saying? God loves us too much for those things to happen. So His blessings don't look like that. They look like things that bless your whole life and bless those around you. 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going to walk into 14. I'm going to run through 1 Kings chapter 13 for you real quick. Galatians 1.8 says this. If a person or an angel of God... But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Why do I bring that out? Because I'm going to show you, I think, one of the passages that Paul is talking about when he's writing to the Galatian church. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 13. A prophet, a nameless prophet, comes to Jeroboam and says, you've angered God. Your kingdom's going to be done. It's over. Prophet delivers the message and he is supposed to leave. In, in 1 Kings chapter 13, something really wild happens in this passage. A man finds out in the city and a man goes to the prophet and he says, Hey, come take a rest, take a drink and eat with me. For I too am a prophet and an angel has told me you need to come hang out with me for a little bit. Modern translation. I'm going to feed you, I'm going to take care of you. An angel told me because I'm a prophet too. And the prophet that heard the message from God deviates from what the Lord tells him to do and he ends up paying with his life. You and I live in dangerous days. There are a lot of Christian people standing around giving messages 
that they claim are from the Lord. And you and I have to be discerning enough to know that if we follow, we're going to be in trouble. If we follow them, if we follow them into something that God will not bless, you and I will share their curse. That is 1 Kings chapter 13. A prophet was given a message of God. The manner in which he was delivered was also set up. He goes and he does what he is supposed to do. And as he is leaving, trying to finish the walk, trying to finish strong, someone else enters in and says, Oh, I too have a message. And an angel gave it to me for you. Come sit down and relax. Listen, the Lord didn't really mean what he said to you a couple weeks ago. He didn't really mean to, to send you on that trek like that. He wants me to provide your needs. He wants me to help take care of you. And the first prophet listens to the second prophet that was lying. And he pays for it with his life. And as I was reading through that passage, I did not want to preach on that today. But I wanted you to, to see it, to know what's happening in transition. Jeroboam is being called out for what he has done. And the prophet has a message and it's set by God. The prophet's method is mandated too. This is the message you're going to give and this is how you're going to give it. Friends, do not let anyone, Southern Baptist leader, President of the United States, Pope, I don't care. Do not let anyone allow you or push you to deviate. You and I have a message and it was not set by us. You and I have a method and it too is monitored by God. Deliver the message in the right way. It's loving and it's kind, yes, but it's also confrontational. It has to be. And no matter who looks at you and says, well, that's really not what God meant. Or I've got another revelation. He also showed me something. Let me show it to you. You and I have to be careful. There are a lot of people running around right now that claim to speak on God's behalf. And yet they do not open or take counsel in the word of God. And if they do that, and you and I follow, we will share their curse. You are called to be wise enough to see what's going on. And if you are not, you need to attach yourself until you are to someone that is. Someone that you trust. Someone that you know. Someone that you know takes the word of God seriously. Someone that you know will look at the whole picture instead of pieces. Why? Because the prophet's minutes is this. The temptation is to always violate one or two. The temptation in the garden was, did God really say? The temptation in this passage was, oh, but God told me something too. Did God really tell you that? He must have made a mistake. Because he told me, and I want to come get you, and I want to feed you, and I want to take care of you, because I too am a prophet of the Lord. Friends, we live in dangerous days. There have been a lot of people that have not had to deal with their sinful behavior with how they use the word of God. They've not had to deal with it. Why? Because we're in a free society. And because of that, there is a lot of leaven, a lot of sin in the church, in organizations, behind pulpits. And there's access to it everywhere. We've got to be wise and shrewd and harmless. We have to be careful of what's coming. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14 with me. Prophet Ahijah, I need to go to him. I need to pray and repent. Instead of doing any of that, all he wants to do is know the future. 
And he's going to lie and manipulate in order to get what he wants. What happens with sinful people? The Proverbs, when we went through the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom literature of Solomon, what do we see? People that are wicked and vile, what do they do? They flatter, they bribe, and they lie. They flatter, they bribe, and they lie. And that is exactly the picture of what's going on right here. Instead of this king repenting, instead of Jeroboam repenting of his sin and praying that God would save his child, instead he just wants to know the future. And he's going to send his wife in disguise to do the dirty work. See how foolish people living in sin can be? And let me give you just a modern piece to hang on to right now. Let me tell you something. When you and I live in a culture where people are living sinful lives, I don't care what their title is. I don't care what the, the abbreviation is behind their name or how many capital letters they have. You need to take what they have to say and you need to sift it really good. Because people living in sin that do not want to honor God, I don't care how educated they are. And sometimes the more educated, the worse. Common sense is just gone. Hitler's Germany was very educated people. They were not stupid. And they did a lot of evil. Look at verse 4. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. Sinners love company. Jeroboam's going to send his wife instead of doing it himself. He's also a coward. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. Verse 6, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus does the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. Verse 9, but you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Sin blinds, but the blind prophet sees better than the king or his wife because righteousness gives sight. Sin miscalculates, but righteousness puts us on the right path. It gives you a proper assessment of all the things that are going on in your life. It will give you direction. Look at the insanity of this passage. And listen, I've talked to people, I've counseled with people that are living in known rebellion to God. And their reasoning and their logic is this crazy. It's this crazy. The king that was uh, exalted by God has now turned his back on the Lord. The prophet that told him it was going to happen was proven true. And so what does he do? He goes back to him, but he goes back to him trying to lie to him, knowing that God has access, that this man is, is, a, is a mouthpiece for the Lord. And what does he do? He tries to fool him, tries to disguise his wife. It's insanity. And today we live in a culture filled with it. Keep going. Look at uh, verse 9 with me. 
If you have done what is evil above all who were before you, you have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Listen, biblical or godly mandates have to supersede every piece of worldly wisdom, practical application, or every pragmatic decision we're going to make for the rest of our lives. Things you and I do, the world will not understand. And so they will call you crazy. They will call you stupid. They will call you backward. Now it's bigoted. They'll call you a thousand different names. Why? Because it doesn't make sense to them. The practical thing for Jeroboam to do was to make sure his people didn't go back to Jerusalem. That makes sense. I don't want them to leave. They don't need to. I'll build what they need and they'll never have to go back. The problem with that idea is it disobeys God. The mandate of the Lord said they were to go to worship. The gift of God was the kingdom to Jeroboam. He didn't have to try to hedge his bets. He didn't have to dishonor God to get the blessing. It was already his. Do you understand, Christian? Every piece of worldly wisdom, every pragmatic idea you have that this works, it's a little bit outside of what God wants, but it works, so I'm going to do it. That will curse you. Every piece of worldly wisdom that we take and absorb and try to use in our life will curse your life. It doesn't mesh with what God has to say. All these commandments in Scripture to the person on the outside looking in look crazy. Man, you could be having so much fun if you were doing this. If you just lied a little bit or cheated a little bit, you could do this, this, or this. Even as crazy as why are you spending time with all those church people? There's a lot of other people that are way more fun. Or there's a lot of time there you're tying up. In this church doing these things that you could be doing something else with. Worldly wisdom will send you and I down a path that will bring curses. See, judgment and blessings aren't poured out because we swam these earthly waters to survive. Judgment and blessings are, are poured out as to how we swam and why. We need to be wise. We need to be shrewd. We're living in this world. We ought to be doing it for the honor and the glory of God. All of that is a given. But just going with the flow or just making it as easy as possible. Curses are given. Judgment is given based on those things. Look at verse 10 to 20. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is gone. Scripture is so tame. Right? Like we think it's so boring. God is telling right now, I'm going to burn your house up. Like people burn dung. How grievous was the sin that Jeroboam committed? It was enough to cut his line off. There will be no more descendants. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken. Your kin will not even be buried. Arise therefore and go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Verse 13. And all of Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord. The God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. This young one has found something pleasing to from God. There's some grace being poured out on this young one. Why? Because the rest of Jeroboam's lineage was tainted and it would be destroyed. 
Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made for them Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. What happens? They started worshiping other gods. They created idols. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tizra, uh, to, to Terza. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all of Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of God, which he spoke to his servant, Ahijah the prophet. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he uh, warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, the son, his son reigned. In his place. Sinful leaders are going to share their curses. There's godly rebellion in that thought. A lot of people are kicking around passages of scripture. That say we need to honor our leadership. And those things are true. But there is a limit to that Christian. And many people that want to fall into that. And just kind of take that scripture. And run it the full length. They don't want to have to deal with what comes next. If we are in a country that is hostile to God, hostile to Scripture, hostile to Christ, what do you think they're going to do to the people that claim His name and actually look like Him? There is godly rebellion. Never forget that. Dig your heels in and stay there. There is a massive warning also in this truth. What is that warning? If you desire leadership, if you want it, if you're a husband, if you're a father, if you want to teach or you want to preach the word, you want to be on the praise team, you want to sing God's glory, there's a warning here for you. Where you lead, others will follow and you are accountable for where they follow you to. You are accountable for what comes next. Don't desire these things. In a way that puts you out front. God calls you to it. He won't let you quit until you fulfill it. That being said. Other than that. It's much better off to serve. In a place unknown. If you're a husband or a father. You've lost the opportunity to sit in the back now. You will be accountable. Where you lead others will go. And their curses. You'll share your curses with them. You'll also share your blessings and your protection. There was a lot going on in this passage. Verse 21 to 23. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah the Ammonite. Very important. Actually, it's so important who his mother was. They're going to mention her twice. Keep going. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed. And then uh, more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also no cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Not to be outdone, Judah's leader and Judah's people are also going to sin grievously. What do, we get, what do we see in verse 24? You and I see this. Sin cycles show how humanity hasn't changed a bit. We've not changed. We have different ways of sin. We have different ways of, of getting our mind around things. But we look just like these people. This cycle, these judgments 
show this constantly. Verse 25, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guards who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Sin always leads to judgment. Some penalties are immediate and some will linger. This is not a condemnation of whatever yesterday you bring in here with you. But it is a warning for every tomorrow. It is a warning to young people that there are consequences to the sin that will be committed. And it will either be immediate and, and God help us even the worst possible outcomes when they are immediate are almost always better for me and you. Because when they linger, other people have to suffer while you work out your issues. Judah is ravaged. Judah is now diminished. And the bronze shields are a constant reminder for king and company. Because at the peak of its power, they were gold. And this place was powerful and beautiful. God has ravaged. God has punished. And now these bronze shields are a picture of what used to be a reminder of what used to be they're going to carry them with them now the grass isn't greener in judah right now that is sad to say and what happens people are killing for leadership 29 to 31 says this as they come to sing this morning as we get ready to wrap up now the rest of the acts of rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Abijah his son reigned in his place. Friends, let me tell you something. The first sign of conflict, or the first sign of sin, the first sign you're going in the wrong direction is conflict. There's internal conflict between you and the Lord, you and the Holy Spirit, as you wrestle about who's right and who's wrong, whose will is going to supersede the other one. There is struggling there, and then there's this one. There is conflict between you and the people of God. How heartbreaking to read this passage and to find out that the people of Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel warred every day for kings that were not godly. They were killing their own brothers and sisters. Listen, a sign of sin that is just so overt is when you and I try to hide, we try to isolate, we try to get away from God's people. If we can't win the war with the Holy Spirit, if we can't win that conviction, then you and I will remove ourselves from the presence of godly people. You find yourself doing that. You find yourself in that position. You need to really uh, take an inventory as to what's going on there. Manifestations are isolation. Or struggle in war. What, what is it manifesting? It's manifesting a sin. Insecure leaders led to poor and sinful decisions. And those decisions tempted people to sin with them. When the king worships an idol, the people have no trouble worshiping it too. Many people followed and paid the price for it. So here we are. You, you and I get our deserved leadership. America, unlike any place in the world at any time, we get the leadership we deserve. So here's my question to you. How are you and I going to navigate that future? 
How are we going to navigate a future where we have leaders that are mandating, dictating, or applauding things that God says, I will curse. And ultimately, He will crush. How are we going to tolerate wicked rulers or corporate mandates or celebrations of sin? Are we going to join them and give our strength to another? That's what Proverbs says happens when we commit adultery. You give your strength to another. When you and I worship anything but the Lord, we give our strength to another. Are we going to go along with it? Scripture would look at the nation of Israel and, and then in the New Testament would look at the church and say, you played the harlot. That's a hard word, but it's there. You've given your strength to another. You've worshipped something other than God. How are we going to navigate the days ahead? Are we going to shy away from them and end up being trampled on? What happens to salt that's lost its flavor? It's good for nothing. And, and Jesus said it's tossed out on the road to be trampled on. You and I have to be light and salt. We have to love, and, and our demeanor shouldn't run people away. The message is offensive enough, but listen, our demeanor is going to have to meet the moment for the sake of your children and your grandchildren. There are some wicked people in charge, and they have been in charge for a long time. And the flood at which is coming, you and I are going to have to dig our heels in, in righteousness, in love, and say this far and no further. Because they just keep coming. Or are you and I going to dig our heels in and stand on the word in righteous rebellion for the glory of God and what? The good of our posterity. Are we going to stand there and hold the line and say, you can go that way. We live in a free country. You can do that. But you're going to curse yourself. You're going to curse the people you love if you continue down that road. Listen, that's the story of the gospel. You have to look at people and say, you're not okay. You're not right. You're going to run into a holy God. And he's going to judge you according to the life of Jesus, not the life of Hitler. And you're going to be on the wrong side of that judgment. That's the gospel. Now we have to look at people and do the same thing. Like, you can walk down that road, but there are no blessings there. And you and I are going to fast to see this day. I am 40. It's coming. We need to start talking about it now. Stand with me today. I want you to dig your heels in. I want you to believe the things of Scripture. Why? Because there may come a day you have to pay something. It may cost you something. To say you're a Christian really mean. If you've not worked out these things in your mind and your heart now, you won't be ready. You'll be Peter. When he denies Christ, you'll be that person. I'll be that person. Don't get caught blindsided. Now is the time to make those decisions. As they sing, if you need something, you come.